there's just zero chance, zero, that we outcompete China if we're underfunding science, research, and development in this country. Just to give our listeners a sense, after World War II, about roughly 5% of American GDP was spent on national, it's called R&D intensity, which is the sum of public and private R&D. These days, it's not even 3%. Israel is 7%. As the 19th century was a century of chemistry, and the 20th century, the century of physics, 21st century was the century of biology. Uh, and we've got to invest in that, that R&D potential, both in terms of improving standards of living for our own country and also for outcompeting others on the world stage. Today on Alpha, China, Russia, and America's place in a changing world. Pax Americana is the slightly tongue-in-cheek term for a period of the greatest peace and prosperity humans have ever known. America and its allies shaped the world's dominant system of international relations, economic rules, and human rights. Now, all of that is under threat. Is Pax Americana coming to an end? My guest, Jake Auchincloss, is no ordinary congressman. His predecessors include Barney Frank and Father Robert Drynan, who were known for seeing beyond the parochial interests of a district. Speaker Pelosi called Auchincloss on the night of his victory to remind him of his special responsibility. Jake Auchincloss, welcome to Alpha. Pleasure to be with you, Stan. Jake, are we on a collision course with China? Not necessarily. I don't subscribe to the fatalism of the Thucydides trap that we necessarily have to fight. History rhymes, but it doesn't repeat itself. And decisions that we can make in Washington and, and that the Chinese Communist Party can make in Beijing can allow for the Chinese people to continue to improve their standards of living and to explore the cutting edge of tech and innovation without necessitating a military conflict. Uh, but as it stands right now, we are in an ideological conflict because the Chinese Communist Party does not share American values. Fundamentally, they believe that individuals are pawns of the state. And that is antithetical to the U.S. conception of the individual, which is as someone who is vested with inherent dignity and value and whose consent to be governed is required for any legitimacy uh, in government. And so it, it is a different conception of ideals. And we are going to contest those ideals because we believe they're universal. Well, let's start with the practical. China seems intent on Taiwan reunification, whatever the cost. U.S. policy has gone from ambiguous and internally inconsistent to clear, unambiguous, and explicitly bellicose. Does that really serve our interests? Well, I would counter the premise. U.S. policy strategic ambiguity has not changed. What is clear is that Xi Jinping and the Politburo are fixated upon Taiwan, whether you believe in the 2027 deadline or not it's clear that they view it as a core national interest. And so there's a few things that we have to do to make conflict over Taiwan less likely, because to be very clear, there are no winners in a conflict between the United States and China over Taiwan, not in China, not in America, and certainly not in Taiwan. First thing we have to do is win in Ukraine. Ensuring the strategic defeat of Vladimir Putin in Ukraine sends a strong message, not just to Russia and China, but to the entire global South, that the United States and NATO are dedicated to upholding the rules-based international order, the Pax Americana, as you put it, and that we're willing to put some muscle behind it when necessary. That'll change the calculation for any potential change of the status quo by force that Xi Jinping might be considering regarding Taiwan. 
Second, we have to help Taiwan deter through strength. That means expediting arms sales. That means doing enhanced military to military cooperation to tie with Taiwan so that their field grade and general grade officers are ready for an amphibious or, or urban tactical environment. And it also means helping Taiwan with energy independence. Right now, the island has only a few weeks of natural gas reserves, which means that they are vulnerable to an energy blockade that could be extremely damaging to, to their autonomy. And that could be the preferred tactic of the CCP. You mentioned the strategic ambiguity. Rhetorically, the U.S. acknowledges Taiwan as a part of China, while simultaneously treating Taiwan as an independent state. Has that posture outlived its utility? I was in Taiwan a few months ago, and what I heard from the Taiwanese people and their, their wishes need to be front and center is that they, know, they have no desire to change the status quo. They understand that they are caught between two giants uh, with the Chinese mainland and, and with the United States. And both of their parties, the KMT and the DPP, while they have different orientations towards China and uh, obviously have different international and domestic priorities, are both keen in this campaign ahead of their presidential election to make clear to the median voter of Taiwan that they don't want to change the status quo. They don't want to change the status quo by lurching towards independence. They don't want to change the status quo by lurching towards a reunification. The current system they have has enhanced prosperity for an entire generation of Taiwanese. It has allowed them to build a thriving civil society and democracy, and they want to preserve it. And I think we should respect those wishes. What you're describing is something of a holding pattern and maybe one that was practical in a world where there was a dominant power and wishes from China that could not be enforced. What is the long-term strategy? Is it to stay in that holding pattern forever? Well, I, again, I don't accept the premise of a holding pattern because as I've outlined with our actions in Ukraine, with our actions of arming and helping Taiwan prepare for self-defense and with our actions in assisting them with energy independence, we can do a lot of tactically and strategically meaningful things to improve their long-term trajectory for autonomy and to be able to fulfill their legitimate aspirations to govern themselves, as any American would expect. But any attempt by the United States to change the status quo by force or any attempt by China to change the status quo by force is just more likely to lead to conflict. And again, there's only three losers with conflict. There's no winners in that scenario. We must do our utmost to avoid it. Let's turn to industry and economics. China has a technological base becoming comparable to our own a manufacturing base in some respects superior, and a population more than four times ours. And they're moving faster than we are. Big picture, our strategy looks a lot like protectionism too, and that seems doomed to failure. Can we really afford to continue to play defense? No, I agree with you. And there's two philosophies in Washington right now about how we compete with China on the economic and technological front. And obviously, the technological front has huge corollaries for, for military prowess. The first camp is keep away. And the second camp is run faster. The keep away camp thinks that through license restrictions and export controls and subsidies at home and the reallocation of supply chain policy towards national security rather than towards economic ends can keep China from technological and economic advances that could rival or surpass our own. And I just don't buy it. Frankly, as you said, this is 1.4 billion people. Most of their students are doing better at math and science than ours are. They're going to invent 
a huge array of game-changing technologies. And frankly, most of it, I think, is for the is for the good, right? Technology knows no boundaries and things that they invent, whether it's in medicine or finance or engineering, are likely to improve our standards of living too. And we should seek as much as possible collaboration that can benefit both countries. Where I am committed, though, is on an, on an offensive strategy of run faster, which is to say, let's invest in what has always made the United States uh, a dominant power for, for a quarter of a millennium. Rule of law, infrastructure, deep and liquid capital markets, high quality universities and K-12 education, uh, funding for basic research, strong public-private cooperation and commercializing the fruits of that research. These are things that the Politburo would look at and envy in us. These are things that are already impairing the Chinese economy today. You see it with high youth unemployment. You see it with a property market that has got a severe debt overhang. We've got a lot of assets here in the United States. And instead of trying to ape the Chinese Communist Party five-year plans and do industrial policy, it's just going to be a beltway bank that for, for lawyers and lobbyists. We should just instead be investing in science, infrastructure, and upholding the rule of law, and our, have great confidence that our economy will prosper. The U.S. R&D tax credit seems designed to exclude funding for basic research for public benefit and focuses on later stage private research. It specifically excludes research funded by government and requires the company to have rights into the research results. Yet the R&D tax, tax credit is the one area where Republicans seem willing to fund R&D with government resources. Is there an opportunity here to open the R&D tax credit to businesses co-funding government-sponsored research open to public use? Yeah, there's a lot of opportunities to cooperate on R&D, both public and private. The Republican Party used to be a very strong supporter of R&D, actually. The NIH budget, for example, was, and the National Science Foundation budget was, was always a bipartisan exercise, and the GOP used to understand the merits of, of basic research. Unfortunately, Donald Trump GOP has been keen just to indiscriminately cut. Uh, we're seeing the latest House GOP numbers for our appropriation cycle, and they're underfunding science. Uh, even, I mean, forget about increases, they're actually cutting. There's just zero chance, zero, that we outcompete China if we're underfunding science, research, and development in this country. Just to give our listeners a sense, after World War II, about Roughly 5% of American GDP was spent on national, it's called R&D intensity, which is the sum of public and private R&D. These days, it's not even 3%. Israel is 7%. Uh, so my, my viewpoint is that we should be doubling that in the next 10 years, certainly not cutting it. And a better R&D tax credit is part of that. One very near-term thing that we can and should do is just fix the mistake of 2017 under the Trump tax cuts that made R&D amortized over five years as opposed to expensed in one year. We should bring it back to expense, which is a, a better treatment for it. The Western democratic political scheme is not the only game in town, as you noted, but for 75 years, it has been the only game backed by a successful economic system. That's changed. China and to lesser extent, the oil states, including Russia, have different values. Whatever we make of them, how do we adapt to a world where we do not possess a monopoly on wealth and self-declared moral rectitude? 
I mean, obviously, d different civilizations have evolved different meanings of the good life and, and different orientations of the right balance between the collective and the individual. We've seen that, as you said, with the rise of, of other powers. And I think that's fine and, and healthy. What I don't accept, though, is that there's any individual in this world who is content to have their naturally endowed dignity and inherent worth stamped upon by any government whatsoever. Uh, I think as we've seen the people of Hong Kong, the people of Xinjiang province, people of Taiwan, people of Tibet have the same innate desires to be treated as individuals of inherent worth as any other individual the world over. And I think so much of what's vested in our declaration and constitution are truly universal values that all people are aspiring to and that the United States has on the balance tried to advance the world over. The Western alliance is increasingly relied on sanctions as a means of exerting extraterritorial influence and control over others. That works mainly because the US dollar remains the world's reserve currency. But each time we do that, we also create strong incentives for alternatives, such as the Euro and the RMB. Are we overusing sanctions at our own peril? No, I think we're using them pretty surgically. And this this assertion about uh, unraveling the network effects of the U.S. dollar by oversanctioning, it's been made for the last 15 years in various forms and really hasn't played out. In fact, there's a fair degree of evidence that the global economy is just as dollarized as it was 15 years ago. Uh, it is true that Russia, China, Iran are trying to de-dollarize some of their trade flows. Brazil has has even made some noise about joining in that certainly of deep concern. Uh, it, since World War II, there's been two core pillars of U.S. geoeconomic might. One has been the United States Navy, and the other has been the United States dollar. So I certainly agree that we got to keep a watch on the fact, uh, on, on the special status of the world's reserve currency. Uh, but my bigger concerns for that are actually about rule of law and, and debt here in the United States. The way that I think we get the world off the U.S. dollars is if they stop trusting that the U.S. government will pay its bills on time uh, and will enforce the rule of law in all circumstances. And that's why an event like January 6, 2021, is Xi Jinping's best day in office, Vladimir Putin's best day in office, because we undermine our, our credibility the world over. Let's turn to the pharmaceutical industry. You've been an advocate of lower drug prices. Uh, who isn't for lower prices? But you haven't been as clear about the consequences of forcing prices down. The pharma industry operates at a relatively normal 18% profit margin, well below the median of other large industries. Banking, by comparison, operates at 30% profit margin. Oil and gas, 26%. Even something as vital as utility water is higher than pharma. Where are the price cuts going to come from? Uh, so as you said, I, uh, I've been a strong advocate for lower drug prices. And in fact, I really think that for most prescribed medications, people should be paying zero out-of-pocket costs. I think the, the important thing to emphasize is that that's a question for insurance companies, not for drug makers. I'm, I'm not sure enough Americans fully appreciate that the price that they pay at the countertop is a price that is set by the pharmacy benefit manager, which is owned by the insurance company. It's not set by the drug maker. So I've got a, a several pieces of legislation, both all of it bipartisan and, and more in the works, 
that would basically take these drug pricing middlemen, the PBMs, and force them to pass on the savings that they have been capturing in the middle of the drug pricing supply chain and pass them on to patients in the form of lower out-of-pocket costs. That has no effect on R&D because PBMs owned by insurance companies are financial intermediaries. They're, they're, um, they're middlemen. Uh, and would do a lot for patients. And actually I would argue a, a lot for innovation as well. Um, but your, your point about the importance of life sciences R&D is, is resonant with me. I represent probably the most, uh, the most dense concentration of life sciences talent of any district in the country. And I think this is the century of biology that we're in right now. Uh, as the 19th century was a century of chemistry and the 20th century, the century of physics, 21st century was a century of biology the things that I think we'll look back on a century from now and uh, be breathless at in terms of their advances will be things like gene editing and the cures, the therapeutics, the diagnostics, even the applications in agriculture and material science that, that they have unlocked. Uh, and we've got to nurture and, and invest in that, that R&D potential, uh, both in terms of improving standards of living for our own country and also for outcompeting others on the world stage. Jake Auchincloss. Thank you for joining me on Alpha. Thanks, Dan.